Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Newsday brought to you by the White Team. I'm your host Rima Hasni and we have a lot of exciting news stories in store for you today. 2020 really seems to be the year the world stopped. Schools, shops and restaurants closed and for the fourth time ever, the Summer Olympic Games were postponed until 2021. The last time this occurred was during the Second World War. Sports reporter Aoife O'Callaghan caught up with Cork-based Olympic racewalker Brendan Boyce and sports psychologist and former Olympic relay runner Jesse Barr to discuss how this postponement has affected athletes both physically and mentally and what their hopes are going into 2021. 2020, the year the world of professional sports ground to a halt. For the fourth time ever, the world witnessed as the Olympic Games were postponed. Live from his training camp in Granada, Spain, I caught up with Olympic race walker Brendan Boyce to discuss what he thinks next year's Olympics will be like in comparison to previous years and whether or not the lack of crowds may affect his performance. So what do you think next year's Olympics will be in comparison to other Olympics you've competed in? And are you still looking forward to it, even if it is going to be that little bit different? Obviously, the the information around the Games isn't clear at the minute, but Mm. I would think that at least the crowds will be somewhat uh, smaller than normal. Um, But my, I guess for my event, because the one of the kind of main uh, athletes in my event is a Japanese guy, so they'll probably be local. All the local support will come out just because they have, you know, personal interests. And even if the international crowds aren't allowed to travel, they'll probably still we'll still get a lot of um, local Japanese people to come and support the event. So maybe it won't be that much different for me overall, but yeah, you probably miss the Irish flags and I don't know if any of uh, my family will travel over. So that's kind of um, different as well. Like, so yeah. But do you think it will affect your performance? I know, like, would you be used to having the crowd around? Like, would it like bother you not possibly having the people there cheering you on? I don't think it'll be a massive factor in terms of, performance for me because I guess I'm used to smaller kind of events because race walking is kind of outside the it's outside the normal stadium like we don't have the stadium crowd and um, generally the most of our meets are kind of in small like little towns around Europe where um, yeah you don't really get probably if you get 500 people that's probably a lot for a race walking competition so yeah in Rio, there was less. There was get less support in Rio because um, the walks course was actually like so far away from the mm. the rest of the events that you know if you're if you're an athletics fan, you basically had to choose between walking and every other event. Whereas if you yeah. just went to the track, you could see everything except the walk. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was probably a smaller crowd in Rio as well. So it kind of. I've, I've got it from both sides, from yeah. kind of a smaller Olympics and a bigger Olympics in London. So I think, yeah, in terms of performance for me, I don't think it'll be a massive factor in <laughs> how I approach it or how I perform on the day. I also spoke with sports psychologist and retired Olympic athlete Jesse Barr about the effect this postponement has had on athletes mentally. But do you think the postponement of the Olympics came as a shock to athletes in general or do you think they kind of expected it? I think once by the time the announcement came out, there was so much kind of talk about it and there was a lot of kind of, you know, will it, won't it. I think a lot of the athletes, when eventually the call was made that it was going to be postponed, they were relieved because there was so much anticipation around it for so long. But I'd say, you know, if we 
if we re rewind back to January of 2020, if we were to say, oh yeah, the Olympics is going to be postponed until next year, it would have been a massive shock. So, yeah. you know, I think having, I think because there was just so much uncertainty around everything, they just wanted an answer regardless. And that's what I found with a lot of things, With the uncertainty was the hardest bit to deal with more so than the postponement of, of seasons and stuff. Do you think the postponement like affected athletes mentally? Well, obviously it did affect athletes, but do you think it was more in a positive sense where they felt like, okay, I have more time to kind of break what I think I'm doing wrong down and look at it again for a new year? Or do you think it kind of affected them negatively? Um, it depends on the athletes. So, so some athletes who are that bit younger, who saw this as an opportunity, you know, some of them maybe who were a little bit, might have been tough to qualify this year, kind of seen as well, it's another year, another, you know, more time to kind of get my training in and improve. So there's lots of people who are in a positive mindset like that, seeing as yes, another year to get better and get stronger and get fitter. But there was a good few who, you know, they might've been on kind of the latter stage of their career. A few people I work with were looking at this as their kind of last hurrah and then thinking of 2021 being the year of moving into real life. So the idea of extending you know, extending on a year of training and extending on a year of that athlete lifestyle was kind of a bit daunting. Um, and then for people who, you know, I work with cycling and they had quite, they qualify a spot. It's the same as it would be in rowing. It's same as it is in a few sports where they qualify a spot and sailing as well. They don't qualify the person like they do in athletics. Mm. So say some of them might've been a bit stressed out because they might've been sitting in a good position for qualification to be brought on the team this year and now they're saying okay I have another year now to go and prove myself again so the idea of that and going back through that quite stressful cycle is quite tough so it was a real mixed bag in terms of the people that I was working with and who who thought it was a good thing and who thought it was a bad thing it was really it was really dependent on everyone's circumstances and that was sports psychologist Jessie Bear thank you so much to Brendan and Jessie for joining me today and here's to a successful Olympics in 2021 Thank you for that, Aoife. It's really interesting to see how COVID-19 and this postponement of the Olympics has affected both an athlete and a sports psychologist in different ways. It really helps us understand how Brendan and other athletes might be feeling at this time. Moving on to our next bit of news, almost 200 homes are planned for development in the fast-growing area of Mungret in County Limerick. Dwellings Development is currently seeking planning permission to build homes across two sites in the area. This new development is part of the Limerick 2030 plans. Chloe O'Keefe reports for Limerick Voice. According to latest figures, there is currently 6,073 homeless nationwide. Figures released by the Department of Housing recently showed a report carried out at the end of September. This report saw current homelessness numbers showing that Limerick is currently the third highest city in Ireland, with 224 homeless within our region. Among this number is 46 families. Good news has surfaced recently when the first steps of the 850-unit development in Mungret have taken place. Dwellings Developments is currently seeking planning permission to build 192 homes across two sites in Mungret, one of the fastest developing areas of Limerick. The site in question is located on the grounds of the former Mungret College and its associated buildings. This project is proudly backed by Limerick 2030, a special purpose sub-organisation of Limerick City and County Council. Limerick 2030 takes order of the building infrastructure within the region of Limerick. Over the last number of years in the planning stages of this development, there has been much pondering of what the buildings will be. According to the most recent plans, the first stages will include 92 homes on each of the two sites 
and is set to be finished by late 2021. In meetings carried out in recent months, it is understood that Limerick 2030 also have plans to deliver a walkable and cycle-friendly neighbourhood that will show ease of access to local schools and amenities in the area safely. There will also be bus routes instated in the area which will reduce the need to always travel by car and reduce air pollution. These would be a mixture of sizes with detached, semi-detached, terraced, apartments and duplexes included. This project is part of a wider programme of investing into public and private housing. I spoke to Fianna Gael councillor Dan McSweeney who welcomed the latest developments. Hi councillor McSweeney, how are you? Thanks so much for talking to me today. What do you think about the new developments being set up in Mungret? There is an ongoing housing crisis and I think over the coming months and years that we've built as many houses as possible in mixed developments, a mix of social, affordable and um, private homes to cater for everyone in the market. I think in the area in particular, we've seen a significant investment in building homes. I think that will be the one concern that is great building houses, but we also have to put the infrastructure in place. The site has recently received approval for funding through the Local Infrastructure Housing Activation Fund. Approval for this fund is thought to demonstrate a joint commitment by Limerick City and County Council and the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government to the continued investment in delivering houses for Limerick. Limerick man and ex-journalist Alan welcomed the news also but considered the location and accessibility of getting a house from this site. Welcome to the show, Alan. Great to have you. What are your own thoughts about the developments in Mungret from a citizen of Limerick's perspective? A lot of it is going to come down to the geography as well. Look exactly at the geography of the site, the microphone, and what it produces to. Um, and again, um, look at the people that it will, will, uh, will, will affect uh, directly the people that are living in that particular area. Yeah? And then secondly, who actually gets the affordable housing? Claire O'Keefe with your news update as part of Tuesday Newsday. Back to you, Reem. Thank you so much for that informative piece, Chloe. Limerick 2030 is a special purpose vehicle created and owned by Limerick City and County Council, tasked with building infrastructure in the region. The first phase of this development is anticipated to be completed by the end of 2021. I hope you have been enjoying the Tuesday Newsday so far. We're going to have a short break and we'll be back with more. Welcome back to the Tuesday Newsday with your host, Reem Hasney. We will now be moving on to our next news segment. We have a piece with Alison Fitzgerald, who is the Academic Officer for UL Student Life. She explained to us how students are finding online learning and if any changes are to be made next semester. Reem Hasney reports. So I'm joined by Alison Fitzgerald, who is the Academic Officer at UL Student Life. And she recently had a meeting with fourth year student reps discussing online learning. So, Alison, can you tell us how that meeting went, please? I met half of them for two hours. It actually ran over time from all the schools and it was, you know, intense. There was a lot of issues that were raised, um, a lot of concerns. And, you know, they did say that they, they accepted that the university were trying, obviously, but it just wasn't good enough. What did you end up doing with the feedback that you got from the fourth years? I 
compiled a document with the theme or issue that was rising, the points and concerns that students had, but we also gave an action or solution that the university could take to help improve it. So the main themes I brought up were like support and accountability, you know, for staff, um, more commitment to replying to emails, um, given like a, give a shorter guideline of like they need to reply within like three to five days at most. Um, that they lecturers need to, you know, upload course materials on time. Um, and then to have a live Q&A in each module at least once a week. Yeah, and then the biggest one then was obviously the no study week. Um, what we proposed was possible to have, I don't know, maybe some of the assessments in early January. Um, just looking at the course material as well, you know, maybe not bombarding students in week 12, given the fact that they have lessons up until week 11 and then they're straight into exams. So just some consideration for how much stuff they're giving them. And then basically the biggest one probably was the too many online systems. So like they have like Solace, Moodle, Big Blue Button, Panopto. And we just said to streamline this to one system to reduce confusion and like just the time it's taking to go between module to module. Um, And the length of lectures was a big issue as well. You know, the two hour block students are finding it very hard to concentrate at home in their bedrooms, you know, listening to a recorded lecture or like a live lecture for two hours that there needs to be a break or else they need to be sticking to 10 to the hour. They need to be given this 10 minutes to like, you know, relax, take a break, go to the bathroom, come online and go on to the other system that they potentially need to go on to to get to a different module. You know, all these things take time. So they were the main key things that we brought. Um, How did the university react to this feedback? They were surprised, obviously, because, you know, this is a trial and kind of error, you know, the online system, this is the first time they had to do it. But overall, the feedback was very well received and they realised that, look, some things do need to be improved and that they're going to create a working group, particularly to focus on making this better. It's about looking at the feedback, how can we make it better overall? Everyone learning from it, it, staff and students. You know, it it goes both ways because like lecturers are struggling at home as well and we need to accept that. But, you know, we need to do the best we can to provide the best online learning experience for these students. What did you do after this meeting? After this meeting, what I did was I sent out a survey to students um, on the online learning to get a broader feeling from them. Yeah, that's being compiled at the moment, all that data. Over 2,000 students filled it out, which is brilliant. So yeah. that's currently what's in the works on my half of it. The survey is still being um, like downloaded, like all the data and stuff. And then I'm going to give that to the Camp G, which is like one of the highest academic planning groups, you know, for the online delivery and stuff. So how do you feel about everything? I'm positive. Um, they took it on board very well. Like they want to get students feedback. They are mad for student feedback. They want to know how they can improve. They want to know what worked well. They want to know what didn't work well. And if any changes are to be made, uh, when do you think they'll be implemented? To the best of my understanding, it will be implemented to the second semester. Now, potentially some of these things and issues that are brought up as well could be looked at before the end of semester one. I am optimistic in that things can be changed and things can be improved. But, you know, I have ex- we, ha- we have to accept that not everything can be changed and improved it might some things might take time but there definitely will be a better outcome for semester two and hopefully there'll be some better outcomes for semester one as well but I suppose only time will tell on that aspect and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today Alison I really appreciate it no worries at all thank you so much Alison is happy that the university have listened to the students and is hopeful that there will be a positive outcome in semester two While the wait time for asylum seekers to work has been reduced to six months, there is still a plethora of problems that exist for them. One of them is opening a bank account. 
Harriet Heffernan reports. I am looking into the problems that asylum seekers and refugees face when they're trying to open a bank account in Ireland. I spoke with Fiona Finn, who is with an NGO called MASK that helps refugees and asylum seekers to realize and fulfill their rights. I also spoke with two refugee women who wish to remain nameless. Hi, Fiona. Nice to have you with us today. Could you tell me, in your opinion, why it is so hard for refugees and asylum seekers to open a bank account? But in our experience, asylum seekers are still struggling to open bank accounts. They've been asked to produce, for example, a passport. Now, anybody who has worked or knows about refugees is very often they don't have a passport. And if they do have a passport, it's going to be with the government, the, the government, because the government will hold on to the passport while they're looking at and assessing the claim for asylum. They are banks are legally obliged under the EU directive to allow asylum seekers um, have access to a bank account. It's a very, very, very basic service. Everybody needs to have a bank account to be able to function in society. Thank you, Fiona, for answering those questions. Moving on, we're going to be speaking with two asylum seekers, women, who prefer to remain anonymous. Good morning. Thank you for answering my questions. So, in your opinion, what's, what is so hard about opening a bank account in Ireland for you? We waited until we got the work permission, although really we were in a position that we need that card a lot. It was very, very important to do many live things. Especially for me, the safety of the girls. I cannot give them cash money to buy things like shoes or something. We go to the market. I prefer the cart that they will be safe and uh, everything, you know, controlled. Because they are, they are also still young to have any cash money or big cash money when they are going to the market or something. A lot of things need to be done through that cart. However, I went again with a work permission and he said, no, until you will work. So I just felt that uh, it will never work. So I just leave it uh, because uh, I found that it's not easy to find, uh, to, to, to achieve that goal. Now we're going to be speaking to the second asylum seeker lady. Thank you. Good morning. I hope you're having a good day. So tell me, what does not having a bank account, how does that impact your life? I went to try to open bank account for my first time after I got my work permit. Uh, I went to a bank of uh, Ireland and uh, AIB and post office. Uh, they didn't want to open bank account uh, because they said I'm an Islam seeker and uh, I have to have a passport. At first they said um, they want a proof of res, which I gave them, my PPS and work permit. But when the manager came, they said, I'm not allowed. I do have a work uh, permit, but uh, now it's, it's pointless to have it because if I work, uh, they pay me in hand in cash because uh, I can't open a bank account. So I can't even use my work permit. So if I find anything to work, I just take it and work without uh, paying through bank, paying hand in cash. A spokesman from the Central Bank of Ireland told Limerick News Tuesday show that Regulation 15 of the EU Payment Accounts Regulations provides that payment accounts with basic features shall be made available to consumers by all relevant credit institutions, and the opening and use of payment accounts with basic features shall be in accordance with the Criminal Justice, Money Laundering, and Terrorist Financing Act of 2010. 
A spokesman of the Department of Justice told Limerick News Tuesday show that asylum seekers have the right to open and use payment accounts with basic features without undue difficulty. Regulations state that the opening and use of such accounts should be made in accordance with the Criminal Justice Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Act of 2010. This is Harriet Heffernan with your Tuesday news updates. Back to you, Reem. Opening a bank account should be a simple thing, but it seems the only way to change refugee circumstances is with new legislation. Thank you so much for that informative piece, Harriet. Now we have today's news bulletin. Aoife O'Callaghan reports on sports and Chloe O'Keefe reports on news. Thank you, Reem. And in today's top sports stories, the FAI have decided not to take action over Stephen Kenny's controversial motivational video. In their statement, they said they have since spoken with a number of staff members and players, including Stephen Kenny. The board has accepted the explanations and considers that the matter is now closed. After 18 years of managing Tyrone, Mickey Hart was officially appointed as the new manager of the Louth senior football team yesterday. Limerick Waste Awareness Week takes place this week, 23rd to 27th of November. The main aim of the week is to highlight ways to reduce the amount of waste by finding greener options such as reduce, reuse, recycle. This year, the week coincides with European Waste Reduction Week and is a continuation of Limerick's celebration of getting the European Green Leaf Award this year. The Cork to Limerick Greenway is getting the go-ahead with submissions for the consultation process now being opened. A number of road and rail-based options have been shortlisted along with an active travel plan which will include walking and cycling. Thank you for those news updates, Aoife and Chloe. This has been the Tuesday Newsday with your host, Rima Hasney. I hope you've enjoyed the show and we will see you next time.